0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 51, A Summary of Ancient Rome, Part 1. difficult to pinpoint the earliest origins of the city of Rome, and this is because Rome's history has been buried under layers of newer material from each time the city has been rebuilt. Rome's archaeological history lays underneath today's city, so a lot of our knowledge comes from written records. We certainly know that the Etruscans were around the area of the modern city of Rome, at the beginning of the first millennium BCE. The Etruscans were not Indo-European language speakers, but the Latins were and they migrated into the Italian Peninsula during the Late Bronze Age. The Latins were diverse in their tribes so they did not view themselves as a united nation. They were a people with common language and common culture. Latin is a language that belongs to the Italic language family which is a branch of Indo-European. There were other Indo-European speaking cultures who migrated into the Italian peninsula as well as the Latins. An example are the Umbrians who settled the lands east of where the Latins would found Rome. The founding of Rome is something that we know very little about and the main source for the explanation is the mythological story of the wolf boys. Aeneas is a man who exists in Greek mythology. Aeneas is said to have escaped from Troy after it was destroyed by the Greeks. A descendant of Aeneas was a lady called Rhea Silvia and she gave birth by the god called Mars to twin boys called Romulus and Remus. The two boys were abandoned in the wild while young and brought up by a she-wolf. When the two boys became adults, they built the city of Rome on the Palatine Hill. When they couldn't decide who should be king, Romulus killed Remus and became the first king of Rome. Rome took its name from Romulus and it would exist as a small kingdom among many Latin kingdoms and tribes in this area of Italy. In fact, the Roman kingdom would prevail for around 240 years with seven individual kings as we described back in episode 25. The kings of Rome were either Latin, Sabine or Etruscan in origin. The Sabines were yet another migrant Italic group based in the same area of the Italian peninsula. The problem that we have with this story of the Seven Kings is that some doubt its accuracy, suggesting that it was a very well written fictional story that would give Rome a bit of cultural identity, which is something that was very important when trying to present your culture as one with a very rich culture. Tensions were likely to have been quite high during this period with many different cities and cultures vying for supremacy as they would have doubtlessly been treading on each other's toes in their quest for power and resources. This is typical behaviour in any area of the ancient world where population levels are high and there are a high number of cities and cultures in a small area. Take ancient Sumer and ancient Greece as examples of this. The story of Rome during the 7th century BCE is a story of a city growing in status and influence, assimilating nearby settlements and establishing a coastal link at the mouth of the Tiber River which runs through the centre of Rome itself. It may be the case that with expansion came social statuses and this may also depend on people's ethnicities which is something that underpins Rome's imperial reach as it continues to grow throughout this millennium. We certainly believe that there was an aristocracy in Rome and we also believe that there was a Senate which governed alongside the King. This Senate would have been a council of elders and their importance would be significant when the seventh and final King of Rome seized the throne by murdering his predecessor. Tarquin the Proud ruled over Rome for around 20 years and had a reputation for ruling like a cruel tyrant. His son was rumoured to have raped a noblewoman and there was outrage among the people. Tarquin may well have been of Etruscan descent and this may have been resented by many in Rome who would have favoured one of their own instead. While Tarquin was campaigning outside of Rome, the Senate agreed that they wanted rid of Tarquin permanently and effectively shut him out of the city this was the end of the monarchy and the beginning of something new now the Senate was in control and they would elect two consuls to act as heads of state and these consuls would be replaced annually this was the beginning of what we would call the Roman Republic and this would be the way that Rome was ruled for almost 500 years. Very early in the Republic's existence something came to light that would underpin everything to do with the Roman Republic throughout its entire existence and that is societal class difference. The wealthy upper class of Rome were called the patricians while all other citizens were called the plebeians and the plebeians were excluded from most things that the patricians weren't, such as becoming a consul, for example. The patricians made up a very small percentage of the Roman population, so when the plebeians were threatening to break away from Rome, the patricians had to reform, and they were forced to do so on a number of occasions. Political representatives of the plebeians would become known as tribunes, Rome was somewhat secure in itself with a good knowledge and handle of everything that was going on in its locality during the 5th century BCE. Most of its urgent strife was internal such as when a group of ten men called the Decembri were commissioned to make legislative reforms but got a bit power hungry requiring them to be overthrown. At the start of the 4th century BCE it was all about outward expansion as the Romans annexed the city of Veii, but they were totally unaware of the seriousness of the threat of a completely foreign culture who were Celtic in origin. Taking advantage of Roman complacency these Celts would actually sack the city of Rome in 390 BCE. These Celtic warriors were more specifically the Gauls and after defeating the Romans on the battlefield at the Battle of the Alia their leader Brennus would lead them onto Rome where they would occupy the city for several months before receiving a large payment of gold to entice them to leave The Romans would be shell-shocked by this humiliating turn of events but they would quickly learn from it by building defensive walls around their city It might have been this sacking which created a feeling among the Romans that would be inherited down the generations. It was as if they believed that their best form of defence was attack and that Rome would become stronger and stronger if it was able to take command of its neighbours either by defeating them in battle or by taking their lands. Despite the Romans being Latin in origin, Its Latin cousins who occupied the area around Rome feared for their own independence, and so the Latins went to war with Rome. It was a bad decision, however, as the Latins were defeated by the Romans and their lands were annexed, but the population were invited to become Roman citizens, which enabled them to have the same rights as the existing population. Roman annexation of neighbouring lands alarmed other tribes of the Italian peninsula who feared that they may be next. The Samnites were to the south of the annexed lands of the Latins and tensions had always been high between the Romans and the Samnites. The Samnites were also an Italic race of people just like the Latins and the Sabines. This resulted in a series of conflicts between the Samnites and the Romans where the Romans attempted to colonise Samnite lands. The Samnites would be no pushover scoring victories over the Romans but ultimately they succumbed to Roman force and the Romans would annex the lands of Campania to the south of their heartlands. The wars between the Romans and the Samnites were brutal and ongoing for a few generations before Rome would be able to unite all the lands of central Italy under one rule in the earliest years of the 3rd century BCE. Once again, this would create a knock-on effect as the lands even further south feared Roman expansion into their own territories. The lands in the far south were the lands of Magna Graecia, settled by Greek colonisers during the preceding centuries. The Greeks of these lands would appeal to help from across the Ionian Sea, and King Pyrrhus of Epirus would answer the call and cross the sea with a large army that would defeat the Romans on the battlefield but the losses to Pyrrhus were so high that he could not replenish his army and capitalise on his victory. Other distractions caused Pyrrhus to return home and the Romans simply took the lands of the southern peninsula to increase their power base and prevent further foreign landings. Rome could now be considered to be a large empire with control of the entire Italian peninsula. The other large empire in this area of the Mediterranean was that of the Carthaginians. The two empires had existed with peaceful relations until now, when their empires had a conflict of interest regarding the lands and waterways around the island of Sicily. This was the first time that Rome had to consider their naval strength, whereas previously they would have only required merchant ships. Now they would need to develop a military fleet. This would be the beginning of a series of conflicts referred to as the Punic Wars with the Punic being another name for anything culturally linked to the Phoenicians who are the peoples that the Carthaginians descended from. The Romans learned quickly regarding war at sea and they were able to overcome the Carthaginians and gain control of the island of Sicily. The Carthaginians would have to head back to their heartlands in North Africa and regroup. The tension between Rome and Carthage was very apparent with both parties understanding the importance of having control of the western Mediterranean. The Carthaginians believed that in order to stop Roman superiority in this area that they should try to strike at the heart of their lands and so a young and ambitious Carthaginian called Hannibal Barca went on an impossible journey to invade the Italian peninsula. A 100,000 men with tens of thousands of horses and mules and 37 war elephants made the treacherous journey through the narrow pathways of the Alps on their way from Hispania to Italy. This huge army had to march for nine days to the top of the pass while being attacked by local tribesmen they would have to rebuild pathways to descend down from the pass and it may well have been that only between a quarter and a third of the entire army was successful in completing this journey. Hannibal's army wreaked havoc in northern Italy and if the Romans were not taking this invasion too seriously initially, then they soon realised that they would need to. Eight legions led by the consuls Paulus and Varro approached a site overlooked by the hilltop at Cannae. Hannibal's army took out the Roman flanks and encircled the Romans. This would turn out to be the deadliest day in European history so far, as almost 50,000 Roman soldiers were massacred. Despite this victory, the Romans would not sue for peace and Hannibal attempted to settle in the Italian peninsula until he could take further action. In the meantime, the Romans would plan their counter-offensive. The Carthaginians were strongest from where Hannibal had marched from, Hispania. So the Romans would plan an offensive in Hispania to attempt to gain an advantage. The Roman army was led by Scipio, who would capture the important carthaginian city in Hispania called Carthago Nova from there he would command the romans to a decisive victory over the carthaginians at the battle of Ilipa and take control of Hispania causing the carthaginians to retreat back to north africa scipio would then prepare to invade north africa and this meant that hannibal barca would have to abandon italy and head home to defend his nation's capital city. Hannibal gambled on a large concession of war elephants in order to win the battle against the invading Scipio at the Battle of Zama. However, the elephants were freaked out and the Carthaginians lost control of them and this gave Scipio and the Romans the opportunity that they were hoping for. Victory was achieved and Carthage was forced into a submissive position in the western Mediterranean and this would draw the 3rd century BCE to a close. With conquest and land came wealth and advances in technology was evident. A huge concrete portico was built at the front of the storage houses on the docks of Rome and the river was being bridged with impressive looking stone arched bridges. The Roman Republic was now the powerhouse of the Mediterranean and they would ensure that their cities portrayed their superiority With power came hunger for further conquest and the Romans would turn their attentions east towards the Balkans Tensions were always quite high between the Romans and the Macedonians but the Macedonians would fall foul of the fact that the Romans were modernising their military much more effectively than the Macedonians who fought in their traditional Sarissa-wielding phalanx formations. The Roman infantry were able to defeat the Macedonians at a great battle at Pydna and this would be the end of the great Macedonian kingdom that was so powerful under Alexander the Great less than two centuries before. Macedonia was partitioned and the Romans had eliminated their threat. The Romans really demonstrated their dominance and their ruthlessness during the 2nd century BCE. There's no finer example of this than when they grew tired of the rebellious attitude of Carthage. Even though the Romans had dealt them a crushing blow at the Battle of Zama, the Carthaginians were still attempting to rebuild their society against the instructions of the Romans. The Romans first started by besieging the city of Carthage to a position of starvation. With the city weakened, the Romans would breach the walls. Their actions were shocking and unforgettable. All buildings were completely destroyed. All residents were killed or enslaved. All fertile soil was salted and left infertile. At a similar time the Romans would besiege and capture the Achaean city of Corinth on the Balkan Peninsula So the Roman destruction of Carthage alongside this would have brought both North Africa and the Balkans into the imperial lands of the Romans Rome's acquisition of African lands was vital to the demand for grain and their growing population So it is likely that the conquest of Carthage was inevitable regardless of what they did With the rapid expansion of the Roman Republic, the very fabric of society would have to change as a consequence. The aristocracy would develop a taste for exotic foodstuffs from acquired lands and the grain subsidies of North Africa would make agriculture in Italian lands a much harder vocation than previously. When the Republic was small, there was a social issue with the patricians effectively ruling over the plebeians, with the plebeians being treated as second-class citizens. Although this difference had been resolved, there was now a new and similar problem emerging. This time, it was a political difference which caused the regular citizens to become less wealthy and so the restlessness of these classes gained momentum through a political movement called the Popularis. It would be the emergence of the Popularis that would irreversibly change the Roman Republic. Firstly, the Popularist movement was seen as a nuisance to the conservative Optimates who supported the retention of Roman standards and tradition. The first well-known representatives of the Popularist movement were the Gracchi brothers. The older of the two brothers, Tiberius Gracchus, attempted to ensure that the land was redistributed to the poorer citizens, but the Optimates in the Senate blocked this, believing it not to be in their interests. As Tiberius tried to publicly rally support, the Optimates organised for a mob to assassinate Tiberius, and when his younger brother Gaius attempted to continue his brother's work, he was declared an enemy of the state and was driven to suicide by those who opposed him. The fact that the poorer citizens were being given hope of a brighter future only to see those politicians who were standing up for their cause being killed would not create a solution but instead would add fuel to the fire. A lack of landowners in Italy meant a lack of military manpower due to a law of requirements, so when Gaius Marius became the military commander, he would make reforms to the army from top to bottom, enabling the Roman army more freedom to prosper rather than tying it up in red tape. Marius would demonstrate the effectiveness of the reforms, with victories over the Germanic tribes in the north that had been increasingly causing the Romans some problems. Marius became a trusted Roman statesman but tensions started emerging again between the Optimates and the Popularis of which Marius was a supporter. Tensions turned to violence and despite a Popularis uprising led by Saturninus Marius defended the Roman state by standing against the violent rebellion. After this time Marius would slip back into comparative obscurity until a rebellion broke out by those Italian residents who were denied the right to be full Roman citizens based on their ethnicity. It would be Lucius Sulla who would deal with the uprising. Sulla would then have ambitions of leading a campaign against the Pontic King Mithridates VI in the lands of Asia Minor. When that duty was awarded to Marius, Sulla was so outraged that he bullied the Senate into giving this honour back to him by marching on Rome. When Sulla was away in the East, Marius would take control of things in Rome, much to the joy of the Popularis. By this time the Senate had already decided to grant full Roman citizenship to all Italian residents regardless of ethnicity, possibly to prevent another uprising when sulla returned marius had passed away so sulla reinstated optimate favor and influence in the senate before passing away himself in 78 bce the next major uprising was not from the popularis or the plebeians but the slaves under the guidance of a gladiator called spartacus around 70 gladiators and slaves escaped from the city of capua and gathered a large group before setting up camp on the banks of Mount Vesuvius. Spartacus would raid, gather and train until he assembled a formidable army fighting for their freedom. Roman generals were defeated by this unlikely gathering numbering into the tens of thousands. Rome had to send one of its best to subdue the situation, namely Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus managed to trap the rebels at Calabria in the far south of the peninsula before capturing and crucifying many of them along the Appian Way, an important thoroughfare for travelling Romans. Spartacus was killed and the rebellion was ended after three years of pursuit. Another man fast gaining a reputation in Roman politics was Pompey. Pompey had been elected as a consul, from an unusually young age before being sent to the Asiatic lands to deal with an uprising in Pontus before heading down to Syria where he would depose the last Seleucid ruler and subjugate the city of Jerusalem. Pompey would form a political alliance with Crassus and another younger man called Gaius Julius Caesar. This alliance would be known as the First Triumvirate. Caesar would set off on an ambitious campaign northwards into the Celtic lands of Gaul and after a lot of hard work and a number of years Caesar would successfully annex the lands of Gaul and bring it into the Roman sphere of influence Caesar would not want to stop there In 55 BCE he transported two Roman legions across the English Channel to the lands of Britannia If Caesar could bring the tribes of Britannia to heel then they would not be able to support the rebellious tribes of northern Gaul. Bitter exchanges took place and Caesar was able to get the better of the tribes of Britannia, but he found himself stretched and decided not to continue with any subjugation as there was still work to be done in Gaul and he didn't want to be cut off. While Caesar was battling away in Gaul, Crassus was over in the eastern provinces attempting to invade the Mesopotamian lands of the Parthian Empire. Crassus had underestimated the abilities of the Parthians whose speed on the battlefield, especially that of their light armoured cavalry, helped them to score a victory over Crassus and the Romans at the Battle of Carrhae. Both Crassus and his son were killed and decapitated in the exchanges in that far off land. Caesar would still be trying to complete the work in Gaul as rebellions to Roman subjugation culminated in the Battle of Alesia, which we focused on back in episode 34 Caesar's army showed their incredible construction skills a hallmark of the Romans They constructed fortifications around the city of Alesia, which also had its own defensive fortifications The siege tactic worked and Alesia fell to the Romans These rebellious Gauls were consigned to a life of slavery and Gaul was now in the hands of Rome but Caesar would not be allowed to govern it. Without the steadying influence of Crassus, the followers of Pompey had grown fearful of the power and intentions of the popularists supporting Julius Caesar, and so the first triumvirate was firmly a thing of the past, and now the Senate, under the influence of Pompey, had demanded that Caesar disband his army and return to Rome. Rather than disband his army, Caesar led them across the Rubicon River, which was illegal and tantamount to a declaration of war. Caesar was now an enemy of the state. Caesar was powerful though and when he marched on Rome, Pompey and the Senate fled into exile. Rather than pursue Pompey, Caesar turned to Hispania to successfully put down any pro-Pompey support there. Then Caesar would head to the Balkan Peninsula to engage in battle with Pompey. Initially Caesar was a bit light handed and Pompey got the better of him in their initial exchange. Caesar was able to hold out until his ally Mark Antony arrived with reinforcements. Caesar's armies won and Pompey fled again, this time for Egypt. Pompey would send a message ahead of time to prepare Pharaoh Ptolemy XIII for his arrival. This was a major concern for Egypt. Firstly, if they gave Pompey refuge in Egypt, they would make an enemy out of Caesar. But then if they refused Pompey refuge in Egypt, then they would make an enemy out of Pompey. So they couldn't win. So the Egyptians took the third option and murdered Pompey when he arrived. When Caesar arrived in Egypt, they proudly showed him Pompey's head, and Caesar was disgusted at how they had treated a highly respected Roman statesman, regardless of his own relationship with him. Caesar would side with the rival to the throne of Pharaoh Ptolemy XIII, his sister and his wife, Pharaoh Cleopatra VII. Ptolemy was deposed, and Caesar would take control of Egypt alongside Cleopatra, even siring a child by her. Despite the death of Pompey, the civil war between Caesar and the supporters of Pompey would continue. So Caesar would travel all around the empire including Hispania and North Africa defeating his enemies until he would finally end the civil war in the year 45 BCE. Julius Caesar was already the most senior priest of the Roman Republic and now his dominance as the senior statesman was secured. He would make the necessary reforms to the calendar which would aid the organisation of religious festivals and agriculture which were very closely linked in the pagan society of Rome. This calendar was so well organised with respect to the astrological relationship to all of these associated aspects that it prevailed right up until the 16th century. Certainly one of the biggest concerns about the 1st century BCE was the lessening of limitations on individual powers. Whereas beforehand the Senate appeared to be in control, now individuals were ensuring that they were in control of the Senate so that they could influence their decisions. When Caesar was granted the right to be the dictator of Rome for an unprecedented 10 year period it was clearly because he had filled the Senate with many of his supporters to replace those who stood against him during the Civil War. It seemed that Julius Caesar had become similar to a head statesman or even an emperor before the Empire but the Roman Republic was not ready for this just yet. Despite the civil war being over, there were still enough enemies that were uncomfortable with Caesar's levels of control. In the year 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was due to have a meeting with the Senate before leaving Rome to go on campaign. Unfortunately for Caesar, the Senate still contained a number of conservative members of the city's aristocracy who were concerned for the future of Rome if Caesar was to be allowed to continue unregulated. While being carried in his litter to the Senate, his loyal comrade Mark Antony was distracted and Caesar would arrive in the Senate, surrounded by enemies. Daggers were wielded and Caesar was struck from all sides and despite his best efforts to fight his way out, he was overcome and eventually fell at the feet of Pompey's statue. Caesar was dead and Mark Antony moved quickly to take control of Rome. One member of the Senate who didn't have any desire to take part in Caesar's assassination was the wise old man of the establishment called Cicero. Cicero always maintained his integrity within the Senate, and although he was not a patrician himself, he did not approve of Caesar's dominant rule, as he truly believed that having a good Senate in charge of Rome was the best method of government Mark Antony was dealt a double blow when after Caesar's death Caesar had not advised that Mark Antony take his place but a younger man called Octavian should instead. The wise and influential Cicero would also favour Octavian and would actively speak out against Mark Antony accusing him of tyranny. However Cicero was actually against autocracy however it came and the reality was that Mark Antony and Octavian would both want to rule over Rome, so they joined forces and had Cicero murdered to prevent him from restoring the power of the Senate. Mark Antony and Octavian formed a second triumvirate with another statesman called Lepidus, who ruled over the African provinces and avoided too much drama. As for Mark Antony and Octavian, they successfully dealt with the ringleaders who arranged the murder of Caesar and then agreed to rule over their respective sides of the empire and avoid treading on each other's toes. Mark Antony in the East and Octavian in the West. The problem with this arrangement, of course, was that Octavian was in Rome and Mark Antony wasn't, so the Senate and the people of Rome developed a familiarity with Octavian and so Mark Antony would become less popular as a consequence and he started to realise that he was slowly being pushed out. Mark Antony decided to establish a firm relationship and control of Egypt, the wealthy and fruitful lands of the Nile, which would be necessary to counterbalance the power of Octavian in Rome. He would emulate Caesar's achievement of striking up a political and a personal relationship with Pharaoh Cleopatra Seventh, and this alliance would be consummated with Cleopatra having three children by Mark Antony. Octavian would declare war on Egypt in order to alienate Mark Antony, branding Cleopatra as a bad influence on him and causing him to become an enemy of the Romans. All Mark Antony was trying to do was take power away from Octavian and Octavian knew this to be so. Things reached ahead when a naval battle took place between Octavian on one side and Antony and Cleopatra on the other at the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. Octavian trapped the fleet of Antony and Cleopatra for many months cutting their Egyptian supply lines before Antony engaged in battle allowing Cleopatra to flee. Antony would soon follow, leaving his fleet to be either destroyed or captured. Antony could not afford this defeat as Octavian was now in a position of unassailable power. Antony's rebellion was crushed and Cleopatra's Egypt was about to be annexed and the two of them committed suicide to avoid capture. Cleopatra's death meant that she was the last non-Roman ruling pharaoh of Egypt before it became a Roman province. The next ruling pharaoh would be Octavian himself. Octavian's power was now substantial He had acquired the command of over 500,000 legionaries but officially surrendered all of his powers therefore putting Rome back in the hands of the Senate The Senate, in charge of the Roman superstate, tired of years of civil war and dispute granted Octavian unprecedented powers by becoming the Princeps in other words, the first man of the state He would hold the position of consul, provincial governor, tribune to the plebs and eventually Pontifex Maximus. He would be renamed Augustus to elevate his status among the population. He would be the first effective emperor over Rome and all of its lands. The Senate could not have reversed their decision even if they wanted to. With Augustus having control of all the armies, he would command even more authority than Julius Caesar before him. Augustus would establish a praetorian guard of ex-servicemen entrusted to act as his personal bodyguards. Despite all of this, Augustus ruled Rome responsibly, and so his reign can be considered as a successful one. 500 years previous to this time, the Romans deposed the monarch in favour of a republic without a monarch, this was seen as an improvement. So, to then go back to a form of monarchy with Augustus now as the emperor could be thought of as something of a regression. In fact, the age of Augustus is seen as a bit of a golden age for Rome and is referred to as the Augustan period, with particular attention to the literature being produced in the empire. It is during this period that the ancient Roman poet Virgil wrote. The Aeneid, which clarifies the story of Romulus and Remus and the foundation of Rome, which takes us back to episode 25 and the beginning of this episode. Virgil told us of how the two brothers were descendants of Aeneas, who was a Greek hero during the Trojan Wars. Virgil's writings enabled Romans to feel proud of their identities and to see Roman glory as something embedded into the very fabric of Roman mythology, thanks to its connection to the works of the great Greek scribe Homer. The historian Livy was a contemporary of Virgil and would write a 142 book history of Rome which supports the Aeneid story of Romulus and Remus' ancestry and foundation of the city of Rome. It also leads the reader through the years of the Kingdom and the Republic. Such works of artistry in these fields and many others are retrospectively referred to as the Western Canon, the embodiment of classics artwork. Virgil's poetry is certainly in a high enough regard to be considered as canonical, but also the same can be said of his contemporaries Horace and Ovid. Another renowned author from this period was Vitruvius, Vitruvius was an expert in architecture and wrote that of the great achievements made in this field during the reign of Augustus which would be thanks in part to Augustus's close ally Marcus Agrippa. Vitruvius's mechanical observations of the human body likely influenced Leonardo da Vinci to draw the Vitruvian Man some 1500 years later during the Renaissance. The Vitruvian man is so well known that even if you don't know the name, then you will have surely seen the image. So Google it right now if you're not sure. Vitruvius would also describe the mechanics of hydraulics, such as a description of force pumps and aqueduct construction, just to name a couple of things, which is also something that Agrippa played an important role in providing on a practical level to Rome itself. Augustus himself would commission the establishment of a city built in the lands of the Belgic tribes, first subdued by Julius Caesar, and described as possibly the oldest city in the modern country of Germany. It was originally called Augusta Treverorum, but it is now known as Trier, and it would become a significant city of the growing empire. Rome was flourishing. However, it was not without setbacks too, and one particular one was in the lands of Northern Europe, much further north than the city of Augusta Trevorum, in the Teutoburg Forest. Roman legionaries were double-crossed by a man called Arminius in the year 9, and there was a huge slaughter of Roman military in the forest. It was a great loss that haunted Augustus until his death but Augustus's reign propelled Roman culture into the first millennium, and although there wouldn't be many emperors who could compare to Augustus during the rest of the century, his work on the Roman Empire's infrastructure meant that Rome could survive the odd bad emperor or two without losing territory or descending into an uncontrollable civil war. Well, that was a big one wasn't it um we're only halfway through as well we've got we've got to do it all over again next week so that was the first part of uh the um Roman uh summary and uh yeah I thought it might be I thought it might be a lot to pack into two episodes but we we've got to do it no point otherwise is there because uh otherwise we might as well just do 25 episodes again so it's all got to be crammed in and then we've got to move on. So uh, I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas I hope it wasn't too bad uh, I know a lot of you wouldn't have celebrated Christmas In the way that you would have planned to Or the, the way that you would have wanted to uh, Because of uh, everything that's going on In the world at the moment So, uh, But I do hope it wasn't a bad one And uh, thank you very much For listening to this week's episode And uh, yes uh, Maybe a, a little bit of a break From all the chaos of Christmas perhaps If, uh, if you get half an hour To listen to this uh, that's uh, that's not such a bad thing, perhaps. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, if you have been enjoying the podcast and you want to support the podcast, you can do it in one of two ways. Firstly, if you go directly to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you can click on the Patreon link and sign up to make um, a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month. And those people who sign up and make... Uh, Monthly donations become lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And uh, this week we have a new member to the Illuminati, and their name is Yannick Kerhervey. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, But you are now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And those people who do sign up, after an amount of time, once you've accumulated... um, um, an amount of donations you qualify for rewards such as last week when we uh, we answered a question at the end of the podcast episode that was for a listener who had qualified for that privilege so you do get privileges and and even to the point where we we can send you t-shirts mugs we can even um, write um, dedicated episodes to the subject of your choice and we've done that on a couple of occasions now uh, earlier this year so um, lots to be able to do. The other way that you can um, support the podcast is by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to us. That's equally valuable um, in its own way. So if you can't afford to make a monthly donation, I totally understand that. Um, but yeah, please do at least rate and review the podcast. That would be a very, very kind thing to do. And it, and it does uh, support the podcast and the project. Right, let's see if I can whiz through some listener Stuff here that's been sent through to me. I know I missed out last week on reading uh, reading it out just because we went over time, really. But um, I've got um, ai I've I've been sent a couple of PDFs about pyramid construction and uh, and transportation of um, of of pyramid uh, bricks by water by means of water, which is a which is uh, something I've not come across before um he sent me a couple of pdfs which um i'm hoping he'll uh, maybe share on uh, the social media either on the facebook or the um the uh, discussion forum, so that we can all have a look at it um but that's uh, been sent to me by john polifska and um if i get time john i'll i'll, I'll invest some time into reading them uh, which i haven't been able to do yet so i apologize for that but hopefully we'll all be able to have a look at it, so that would be, that would be better than just showing it to me, wouldn't it? Uh, but thank you, thank you anyway. Um, Daniel uh, Kerkera, Um or Cer- Cerquera, I, I'm not sure if I've said your name right, I'm really sorry. Um, it says, uh, hi Chris, my name is Daniel, I'm 37 years old and I live near uh, Curitiba in the south of Brazil. I listen to the podcast via Spotify, and I'm currently in in Volume Two, Episode Seventeen. I'm mainly writing to you because you seem like such contacts uh, from your listeners. You seem to like such contacts from your listeners very much. I sincerely like the podcast very much. I found you on YouTube, uh, History of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, uh, the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages. That page is called uh, when I was trying to learn a bit more about the Bronze Age collapse. Uh, This approach of having a whole world history was exactly what I wanted to study, although I only realised it when I found your podcast. Great accent, clear articulation of difficult words, awesome pace of episodes with good balance of how deep to dive into the details. I do hope to catch up soon with the episodes. Keep up the excellent work. Thank you very much. Yes, um, the YouTube channel is called The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages. It's made by a gentleman called Nick Barksdale. Um, who's uh, who very successfully runs that web page, and it's a very very well respected uh, project that he's got on there now, and I'm and I'm honoured to be a part of it. Um, it's great that you found the project through that, and it's it's great that you're enjoying this world history. I think it was something that was missing from the podcast libraries, um, so I'm pleased that I'm filling that gap for you. Um, Kip Schumann has written in and put, I am enjoying your podcast. Would like to make a one time contribution since I would like to support the work. I only see where to make monthly contributions. Where do I make a one time contribution? Um, very easy. Uh, just go to the history of the world podcast, uh, com website and click on buy me a book, and that will, and you'll be able to do that there. And, uh, Also from uh, Brian in Dublin Hi Chris, I'm really enjoying your podcast You share heaps of fascinating knowledge in easily digestible chunks, I enjoy your style and accent and feel like we are just sitting around after dinner discussing our favourite subject, keep up the good work Well thank you, thank you Brian and thank you to everyone who's written in, it really does mean a lot and it uh, really uh, helps me to validate what I'm doing It's all very well me thinking I'm doing a good job but if no one else thinks I'm doing a good job um then uh, it's pretty useless really so all your uh, all your messages and everything you do when you're writing is is highly appreciated so thank you so much philip elsgood has written in saying enjoying the podcast thank you i'm trying to get the maps from the website but all i can get is a where to listen page thanks um i well I believe, like, I mean, if you go to the website and you click on uh, the links that say Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, um, not all of the episodes have got maps. Uh, but if you click on the word map, then it should take you um, to where there's where there's a map that you can actually see that's associated to the episode. Um, if anyone is clicking on the word map and it's not taking you where you should go, um, it might be a bad link, so I'd, I'd love to know about that if you found a bad link. But yeah, if um if it doesn't say the word map next to the uh next to the podcast episode title in the in the uh, library of of podcast episodes on the on the web pages, then then there won't be a map because I haven't made a map for all the episodes. Like the, tonight's one, um uh, tonight's episode it won't have a map because we've covered all of this period in in previous episodes and and a lot of them will already have the map so um but yeah like as i say if you well thanks for writing in as well philip but um also if you find a bad link do please let me know okay let's uh let's read some reviews i've got a review from um, okay, okay, oh, okay, OK OK O O K, uh who lives in the United States of America. I'm not sure how you get through life with that name, but anyway. Um it's five stars, great podcast, great show. Although it would help if you can raise the sound volume, it's hard to hear sometimes. I work in a loud environment. Other than that, it's absolutely perfect. Keep up the great work, Chris. Um, I would just say, um, like I, I have had that in the past, but not for a long time. It's been a long time since someone's said the volume is is low. Um, all I would say is, if you find a particular episode that you think that you you think is too low, that I'd be interested to know because it might be that I can do something about that. So, um, but likewise, anyone who's struggling to listen to any episode or thinks that there could be a volume increase or or something's amiss. I'm always interested to hear about it, but uh, thank you for that uh, great review. It really does mean a lot when people do rate and review the show. It's, uh, it, it helps us no end. Anyway, I I would imagine there's going to be other um, feedbacks on, on other social media channels, but I'm conscious that we're running out of time again. Um, and uh, next week, it's going to be the second part of the Roman summary. Uh, Before we finally move on, which is quite exciting, we're going to move on to other cultures. So I think that's long overdue. I think the story of the Greeks and the Romans has really taken up pretty much the entirety of 2020, um, which I think I knew it would, you know, when we was entering into this year. So um, looking forward to next year um, and getting into some other stuff. We're going to be going north we're going to be talking about the Celts initially and then we're going to be talking about the people of the steppe and then heading further east into India, China and then over the Pacific into the Americas and then uh, rounding off volume three so I do believe we've probably got another 25 episodes to go in this volume so it's going to be a long old volume um, but um, it's necessary I think if we're going to tell this story properly we've got to do it properly You can't do any shortcuts so um, looking forward to um, another sort of two dozen episodes, perhaps in this volume of uh, classic world stories. Anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for listening all year. I know it's been a tough year, and um, I'm glad that I've you know been there for you as well. You know, developing all of this uh, history storytelling. I'm pleased that I've played my part. I hope. And, um, you know, hopefully next year we're going to have a better year, all of us, together. And um, thank you, anyway, for listening this year. It's really been great. All of your support throughout the whole year has been fantastic. So I can't thank you enough as this podcast gets bigger and better and stronger. Um, And hopefully we'll continue that trend next year. Anyway, that's it from me. Uh, Happy New Year, everyone. I'll see you again in 2021. And until then... Be good. Do you want more from the History of the World Podcast? Then visit our website History of the World You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us